teach the way we do oftentimes. We're not against topical teaching, but we find, of course, that when we teach through a book, we get the whole emphasis and the intent built and pieced together like a puzzle or a tapestry of sorts. And so we're, we're doing that. We're in Hebrews chapter 6 today. Um, one of the things that is, if there is a benefit to both being privileged to lead worship on a Sunday to lead you in worship, but also to bring and to teach the Word of God, and it's that I get to craft the songs to accompany the teaching. So I have done that this morning, and hopefully I've done that well. Maybe I shouldn't have pointed it out, because then some people can be like, who's this guy? What's, this guy couldn't even pull songs and teaching together. Um, no, so it, it was, though, just to... One of the things that we endeavor to do is just like what I was speaking of how we teach through a book also on a Sunday morning, is to not have compartmentalized Sunday worship, but it's to actually just re- remember and remind ourselves that we're in the flow of a living and active God who will turn left or turn right at times, and who, um, and so to bring our songs and to bring our word together with a sense of continuity and trajectory and theme is, it's a blessing. So we've done that this morning, or hopefully I have. So let me pray before we begin. I'm just feeling a stirring in my heart, and I really want to ensure that the Lord speaks so clearly to us today. So Father, we come just continuing in a heart of worship in the space where we have thus been of singing of your nature, your character, of course, reflecting upon the cross of Jesus Christ the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the new creation life. Lord, at this moment in history, at this moment in time, Father, the need for your church to stand firm on the rock that is Jesus Christ is almost greater than any other moment within history, it seems, at least it feels. And so, Father, we pray today that you would draw us out of our dark places that you would bring us into utterly the great light that is Jesus Christ and the gospel to shed light on all aspects of our life, Lord. Build us, we pray today, as a church who desires and is fervent to see the glory of God made manifest in this city. Build us today, we pray. Unite us in intent, in purpose. Unite us, Lord God, in faith, we pray. And so stir us into maturity, into perseverance, into hope in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the writer of Hebrews who now so many hundreds and thousands of years ago, Lord, penned these words, and yet, God, you had us in mind today. And so we take a hold of them as being vibrant and life-filled and life-giving for our every need. And so we come now in place of faith, and gratefulness in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin this morning with an illustration. I have to admit, I'm not really great at illustrations. Um, I desire to do them more often because they're very helpful, but uh, I realized I've got a very practical illustration this morning. So I actually want to begin with that. As a musician, which I am, in which I just engaged in, in fact, while I was playing, there was a moment my hand started to get tired And I was realizing the very words I'm about to say to you, I've suffered myself. And so as a musician, one of the things that you endeavor to do, 
And, or maybe not even just a guitar player, but someone that works with their hands often and, and requires a sure and steadiness, is that you endeavor to build dexterity within your hands. If you play the piano, you know that having a, a far reach, a large reach, is, is necessary and helpful. If you play the guitar, building dexterity helps you hold chord forms. It helps you um, not only in longevity of being able to play, but it also builds a quickness in your muscle memory to recall chord structures and to play inversions, etc., etc. In fact, one of the very first disciplines that you learn when learning the guitar is how to make a chord structure. And guitar is probably like one of the most common instruments that someone, most of us pick up at some time in our life. And so you probably know what I'm talking about in that moment if you've played guitar where your fingers begin to build the calluses on the tips and you're so thankful for it because they're no longer just hurting so badly as you're endeavoring to press the steel strings down onto the fret. All of that is building dexterity into your hands. And as I said, there's two things that come from building dexterity. The first is that you're building strength. So as you practice, as your grip intensifies and gets healthier, you're building strength within your hand. You're causing your fingers to stretch to those distant spaces and notes on the guitar. But not only are you building strength, but you're also building muscle memory. The more you hold the chord structures, the more that you give yourself to scales, which if you play the guitar, you know that as well. The more you hold on to those things, the easier it is for you to find them again. I'm assuming you are looking at the photo that's up on the keynote at this time. This is a tool that often is used to build dexterity. Don't get too far ahead of me on the keynotes, though. You're going to ruin my punchlines back there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just messing around. This is, a, this is a tool that guitar players will use. There is someone that's looking to build up some strength in their hands. It's, I don't even know what it's called. It's like some kind of grip thing. But anyway, what happens is you move each one of those things individually. Your fingers get stronger and stronger and stronger. So when you do an activity like finger scales, listen to this. is really fascinating. This, there are sensory receptors that we have in our muscles and in our tendons, all right? And what happens is, is they're sending information to our brain as we're doing these exercises. And the information that they're sending to our brain is about the position of the muscle, the, um, the, 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 um, the formation of the muscle, the force that the muscle is using to apply pressure at that moment, and it's telling them when to contract and when to expand. That's what's happening. And listen, the more and more that we do these types of exercises, the faster those receptors move and the quicker the muscle memory takes form and takes shape. So why all of this? Why this illustration? We're going to see here in Hebrews chapter 6 that what the author in verses 13 through 20 is what we're going to be looking at. What the author of Hebrews is getting at is he is encouraging his readers. He's encouraging us to engage in their, their faith grip activities, to build dexterity in their faith for not only longevity and strength in faith, but also for quickness of movement and motion that faith often necessitates. Are you following what I'm saying? So we're going to see that this is really what the author of Hebrews is getting at. And what he uses as the object, if you will, you got my next one up there? Give it to me. There it is. What he's going to use is he's going to use this word of the promise. 
to have us use our faith muscles to strengthen and to build dexterity. Okay, see, I'm, I'm not great at illustrations, but I try hard, all right? I'm being told I am great at illustrations. So, so we're going to see here in these seven to eight verses, like I said, that the author is going to call us to exercise our faith grip so that we would become stronger in our faith and also set ourselves in a sense, with a new faith default. How many of you understand this idea of default? It's like when you're frustrated, where do you go? We default to our sinful nature, right? We're, we got road rage. Oftentimes, we default to the sinful nature. What God wants us to do, brothers and sisters, he wants to change our default when it comes to our faith. Do we recede in fear or anxiety or frustration or disillusionment, or do we remain steadfast and persevere and push forward in faith. This is what the author is calling us to. So let's look at the text today, Hebrews chapter 6. I actually want to begin in the couple of verses prior, verses 11 and 12 that Rick spoke of last week. So we'll begin Hebrews chapter 6, begin reading in verse 11, give ourselves a little bit of a runway here. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and a steady anchor, excuse me, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What a beautiful portion of text this morning, and I'm looking forward to just unpacking it again. And and as I said a moment ago, let the Lord strengthen us today in this call to perseverance. And I love just the picture that the writer gives to us here, especially in verse 15 where he says, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Patiently waited, obtained the promise. This is the call to us today. This is the call to persevere to the very end. There is a a more literal translation of Hebrews, verses 11 and 12. I want to just read it to you because I love the language of it. And I have to be honest, I read it this week as I was studying, and I can't figure out what the translation is. I searched for it like crazy, but couldn't figure it out. So I just think it's a a more literal of the Greek is what I'm going to propose it as. So here's what it says. And I think I've got it, yeah. Verses 11 and 12 says, Our desire is that each of you should display the same eagerness for the fulfillment of your hope right on to the end, 
so that you may not grow sluggish, but imitate those through faith, who through faith and steadfastness inherit the promise. Imitate those who through faith and steadfastness inherit the promise. I love the way that he puts that. And, and let's remind ourselves too of where we were last week and the difficulty of last week's text in light of, of, of the seemingly contradictory nature. And again, if you are still wrestling with it, I would encourage you to not give up in your wrestling with the text. Listen to last week's teaching again. And go to the Lord and ask him to give you clarity on what was being said. But essentially what's happening here is there's a movement from the author and he's moving from this space seemingly of where it was almost like he posed a question, although of course he was resolute in the point he was making in his mind. But here is almost his proof for it. This picture of Abraham and he begins with the story of Abraham very succinctly here in this portion of text. And here is Abraham and now he's going to say, Abraham obtained the promise through patience, through faith, and through steadfastness. And this idea of the promise here is what we're going to hold on to today. And let me just say, how encouraging is it to follow someone faithfully when we see them having walked before us successfully? How encouraging is it when we are called to do something, to look to others who have gone before and have completed that which we ourselves are called to. And as we know, we're going to get into the latter chapters of Hebrews and we're going to have the, the hall of faith, right? As so many people call it, of all, or not even all, of so many men and women who have gone before us in faith, but how encouraging it is. And so the author gives us Abraham here. And he's gonna tell us a story very quickly about Abraham and the promise that came to Abraham and how that promise still exists for us today as heirs of the promise, which is the language that he uses. And because that promise still exists and because Abraham fulfilled his calling through patient endurance, so we too should fulfill our calling through patient endurance. But even more encouraging than following someone who has gone before successfully is knowing that our success like theirs is absolutely certain. Our success today is absolutely certain. Whether you will or whether you will not finish the race, it is certain, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, you will finish the race. There is no question. The writer of Hebrews leaves no room to whether or not the certainty of your salvation exists today. And as faithful of an example as Abraham was to us, it isn't the faithfulness of Abraham's obedience that Hebrews presents as the aim of this text. It's the outcome of Abraham's faithful obedience. When he says again, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. Abraham's obtaining of this promise was a certainty, not a possibility. Abraham's obtaining of the promise was a certainty in God's plan. It was not a possibility in God's plan. 
Therefore, too, as I said, it is a certainty in our life according to God's will. It is not a possibility. For we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor, the writer says, of the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor, not a wavering and weak weight at the bottom of the ocean that drags along by the current. We have a sure and steadfast anchor. And I love the analogy of the anchor that he uses as well, because the anchor is not fixed to the bottom of the sea, is it? It's fixed behind the curtain in Jesus Christ. And do not forget, this whole trajectory up to this point has been showing us and speaking to us how Jesus Jesus is greater, how Jesus is better. He's the greatest high priest. He's the greater prophet. He's the more perfect son. He is the absolute revelation of God to humanity. Jesus Christ as the ultimate, the uber, the other, whatever word we can find to set him as the supreme and sovereign God. That is where we have been thus far. So when we keep that in mind, as we read this, this lens through the greatness of Jesus Christ, when we read of the surety and the fixed nature of this anchor into Jesus, our hope is filled and our faith is also stirred. It's not because Abraham's actions or obedience were certain. Listen, it wasn't because of what Abraham would do as much as it was because it was God's word that was certain. It was the promise that was certain to Abraham. It wasn't that God knew that Abraham would be obedient, although he did. It was that Abraham's obedience was faithfulness and righteousness because God's word was certain. Does that make sense? We following me here this morning. We doing okay? Okay. All right, all right. I don't need much cheering along, but once in a while, just give me a, yeah, righty. boy. I'm hearing you. <laughs> the entirety of this passage, verses 13 through 16, it hinges on this very point that God is most certainly faithful to his word. Can you say that with me? God is most certainly faithful to his word. Let's say it again. God is most certainly faithful to his word. Yes, he is, Lord. Great is your faithfulness to me. Great is your faithfulness to me. And because he is faithful to his word, we live with the assurance that every promise, every promise, church, will surely come to pass. And the fruit of our assurance then, the fruit that this causes in our life, knowing that every promise will surely come to pass, causes us to persevere and to remain steadfast in every circumstance. As the translation that I read of Hebrews 11 and 12 says, right on to the end. Every promise is certain. Every word of God is true. Every word of God holds like an anchor to our souls and therefore the fruit of that assurance that is built in our life is a steadfastness, a steadfastness of character, a steadfastness and perseverance. A steadfastness and a perseverance in light of every circumstance. 
every single circumstance. We don't need to go too far to think of significant circumstances. This cultural moment, brothers and sisters, the, the political turbulence, the cultural tumult, the economic instability, these are just external pressures, right? We're not even talking about the own the, the, the issues and areas in our hearts where we waver at times that are already our unbelief because of our sinful nature, because we don't follow perfectly like Jesus did. But yet God gives to us this example of Abraham, a man, a human, just like us, with all of his weaknesses, with all of the, of the, the, the silliness and the unbelief that he's going to walk out And we're going to look at some of that here in a moment in Genesis where God promises to Abraham. But here is a man that's given to us as an example, and he is proven to be certain in his faithfulness to God. So let's look at the origin of this promise that that we're to hold on to. We're given three different accounts in the book of Genesis, and, and you can turn with me if you want, but I'm just going to quickly refer to them for the sake of time. Three different accounts of Genesis. The first is found in Genesis chapter 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. The first time he's still Abram in Genesis chapter 15, and God makes a covenant with him, and and he appears to him for the very first time. As I said, he is still Abram at this moment, and and God makes a covenant with him that as many as the stars in the sky, he says, so too shall his offspring be numerous. And then it tells us that the Lord sealed this covenant with a sign with animals and they split the animals and put them in two. And it was this this picture of of, of the covenant that God has made with Abraham. And then we look again, two chapters later, in chapter 17, God gives, once again, he renews the covenant with Abraham in 17 verse 4, and he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, not just no longer many offspring, but now he expands it, and he says that your name shall be called, your name no longer shall be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for you are a father of many nations. And so here is this kind of an expansion. He makes a covenant with Abraham, and then he renews that covenant. Each time he renews it, It's like a little bit more that he gives us this picture of the promise of God to Abraham. And so he says in verse uh, 6 of chapter 17 that from Abraham will come kings and he will establish his covenant not only with Abraham but also with the offspring of Abraham throughout generations. And the covenant, he says, will be an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. And God will give to him and to his offspring. Now he promises him a land, the land of Canaan. And then five chapters later in Genesis 22, turn to Genesis chapter 22. God renews this covenant yet again, a second time. So he gives it once, he renews it in chapter 17, and now he's going to renew it again. And this we know is just following Abraham's obedience with Isaac where God has instructed Abraham to give Isaac, to, to, to sacrifice Isaac as an offering unto God. And of course, we know the story. And now here, because of Abraham's obedience, in chapter 22, beginning in verse 16, 
the Lord says this, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God, again, he declares a covenant promise with Abraham that his offspring will be numerous and that not only that, but they will obtain the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And now God adds to it yet again and through his righteous offspring, through Abraham's righteous offspring, he says, all the nations shall be blessed. We've spoken of this before, but listen, this blessing of the nations that we find here in verse 18, it can be read as twofold. And this is important today to understand this in light of what Hebrews is saying. We have, of course, the blessing of the nation, the blessing of the nation, who is Jesus the Christ, foreshadowed here in God's promise to Abraham that through his lineage, Jesus would come. And of course, we know that Jesus is the blessing of all nations. And this really is what Paul's argument is. If you're familiar with Galatians 3.16, this is what Paul is saying. But not to be um, contradictory, Paul also will say in Romans chapter 4, I believe, that this blessing can also be seen as we, as those who are the children of Abraham, those who are heirs to the promise through the gospel and through the blessing, which is Jesus Christ, we now, as his church, are a blessing to the nations. And we act out and we live out this blessing as the redeemed, as the new creation of Jesus Christ. We live this blessing out by bringing the gospel to now a needy and sinful world. So there's this, this kind of twofold understanding in God's promise he, he foretells the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he speaks of those who would come after, those who are the heirs, which is us. And again, as I said, which Paul speaks of in Romans chapter four. And so as the heirs of the promise, we are to be a blessing to the nations. But how, how is this so? How can we be absolutely certain that this is true? We believe this, Right? I'm assuming there's agreement in what I'm saying here this morning, that we understand and we believe that we are children of the promise and we know that God's word remains true and we know that God will keep us and he's preserving us by the power of his spirit until that day. But how do we know, do we know, do we know, how can we be certain? Because let's be honest, at times we waver and we wonder. And so what Hebrews tells us here in chapter six Let's go back to it again. Are you guys following me okay? Okay. That a boy. That a boy. <laughs> you know, for he's a jolly good fellow would work too. <laughs> Feel free to break out a cappella. <laughs> That's so stupid. So how do we know? How do we know without a doubt that as heirs of the promise, we will obtain the outcome of our perseverance? How do we know without a doubt that we will hold steadfast until the end? 
How do we know without a doubt that we will obtain our eternal salvation that is promised to us as children of Abraham? How do we know? How do we know, in fact, that we will surely be saved? That we won't fall away? That we are not of those who were spoken of in earlier in chapter 6? How do we know that we are not those who have tasted of the heavenly gift and of the Holy Spirit and of the things of the ages to come and yet have fallen away? How do we know, brothers and sisters? The writer addresses this very matter because the promise which God made to Abraham, the promise which we ourselves are heirs to, follow my logic, which we will enjoy the benefit of, which we do enjoy the benefit of in part, and we're promised of it in full. Hebrews tells us that what Genesis records in chapter 22, after having renewed his covenant with Abraham for a second time, it says this, the Lord guaranteed it with an oath. I'm telling you, we have to elevate our thinking of what God does, our understanding of what God does, because we have to remember that we're starting from this perspective of our finite and limited understanding. So when we hear promises, we believe and understand that promises are broken. When we, when we hear of an oath, well, nobody even uses that word anymore. The word covenant, we just typically use it within a religious context, and even that oftentimes has to be explained. We're starting from here. And so, brothers and sisters, let's realize that when it says it was guaranteed with an oath, that means something so significant. There's no question in the writer of Hebrews' mind whether or not these things would come to pass. They are absolutely certain. And he, he quotes now Genesis 22, and he says, I will surely bless you and multiply you, so that by two unchangeable things in which, what? It's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. I will surely bless you. The two things are what? A promise, God's word, and if that wasn't good enough, he's going to seal it with an oath. What's the significance of an oath? Through this oath to Abraham, listen, God pledged himself as surety to the promise. It doesn't get much more certain than that. He placed his character, he placed his dignity, he placed his word on the line when it came to the fulfillment of this promise. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, but what's greater than God? What does God swear by? He swears by himself as the greatest, the most supreme. Men would invoke God's name as an oath to keep covenant, but there being none higher, God swore of himself that his promise would be certain. And his, in the words, and I love this, I don't know if you picked up on this, but when the writer of Hebrews quotes Genesis 22, he says this in God's promise, surely I will bless you. Did you notice the change between what Genesis records and what Hebrews records? Genesis says, I will surely bless you. And Hebrews says, surely I will. And you might just think, well, you're just making a, you know, you're splitting hairs at this point. But there's actually a difference in the word that is used 
right here in surely, and it shows up one time in the New Testament, and it's right here in Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews is using it intentionally because what it has behind it is a greater force that's intended. And really what he's saying is, I will most assuredly bless you. There is a forcefulness of certainty that the writer of Hebrews wants to convey and he wants us to grab onto. And if you're, if you're not following me 100%, what I'm not saying is that God wants to bless you like Creflo Dollar wants to bless you. Can I say that? What God is saying is that you will most assuredly obtain that which I have promised to you through my covenant with Abraham, which is your eternal salvation, which is the blessing to your life, which is full glorification and eternal worship and presence with God. It is certain. Do not wonder today. If there ever was a wonder in your heart and mind, do not wonder. It is certain. God has promised and God has given an oath. You can't make this stuff up. I couldn't write this. I'm not joking. God gave himself as an oath. I want to read this to you. This is uh, Richard Phillips says this. He's a, he's a theologian. He says this about God's oath. God does not need oaths because he is infallibly trustworthy. And yet here he swore an oath to accommodate the weakness of our faith. He swore by himself so that Abraham would not fall prey to doubt or unbelief ever again. It's like here we see again God not only providing the way, but taking so much of a further step towards mankind to, to enable us to hold on and to hold fast in faith. Praise God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him this morning, church, for he has provided a way and a means and a certainty for that which he promises to us. So what then is the result that the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand? What is the significance of this? We have seen that God's promise to Abraham was not just for a son, but a promise of many children, of which we now are, of which he says here that we are heirs of the promise, he calls us. We've seen this. We, we understand that, 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 we, that we now who are a part of this heir, that we as his children are a blessing through the nations and through who the blessing of all nations through Abraham would come from. And as a culmination of this promise, the realization of the blessing to its heirs is eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. See, this is the hope that we hold unswervingly to that he says here. This is the, the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And again, this language of an immovable unchangeable, eternal truth of an anchor placed firmly in Jesus Christ. It's almost like a, a rope fastened around Jesus' waist and he's dragging all of his children along with him. We will most assuredly enter into our eternal salvation. And we've, we have, we've understood here that God in his mercy and in his kindness, because of our propensity and our, and our weakness that he sealed this promise with an oath that is, that is sealed and, and placed in him, that oath upon himself, which he cannot lie. He does not change. 
Listen, it's impossible for God to lie, as the writer of Hebrews says. Why? Because it would be, therefore, it would begin his, against his nature. If God could lie, what is true in this book? God cannot lie. And so he gave this promise and he sealed it with an oath. And this oath will not change. And this oath now holds us moored like an anchor firmly fixed in Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest, who has gone before us, who stands now continually on behalf of us before the Father. This is the hope that we have, brothers and sisters, today. I think oftentimes many people confuse optimism with biblical hope. We're not optimistic. We're certain. Our hope is fixed in certainty. Optimism is not. Right? So I want to give you just four statements. They're simple. They don't necessarily even need any expounding beyond what I have said in just the last few minutes here this morning. They're they're already rooted in this. And I would say, consider them as, as proof statements as anchors for your hope, as anchors for your faith. When you feel uncertain, there are ways for us to remind our own hearts that we are not uncertain, but we are fixed in Jesus Christ. Do you have them for me here this morning on the keynote? The first one is this, that our hope is certain because God's promises have never failed any who have trusted in him. God's promises have never failed anyone who has trusted in them. The second is this, that our hope is certain because God's purpose is unchangeable. And Hebrews says this, to show us more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Our hope is certain because God's purpose is unchangeable. Number three, our hope is certain because God cannot lie, as I just said. He's incapable of lying. Don't even wonder whether or not he wants to lie. He doesn't. He can't lie. Number four, our hope is certain because God's oath backs up his promise. God's oath seals his promise. God's oath preserves his promise It promises his promise, if there's such a thing. Those four things, God's promises have never failed. Any who have trusted him, God's purpose is unchangeable. God cannot lie, and God's oath backs up his promise. Those are four proof statements. Write them down, remember them, or write them in your own words. So So it's a prayer and a song or a truth of your own heart, brothers and sisters, that you can hold to and you can remind yourself of when things are uncertain, God is certain. Amen? These are the anchors that we have. And I was thinking about this. Oh, excuse me. Getting choked up. I was in prayer this morning and I was thinking about what I wanted to say and I always want to try to not only apply what we're hearing, but also remind us that there is always an external outward movement of the gospel. The gospel never ends here. It begins here and it moves outward. So there has to be an external manifestation of this truth 
in some form where it has fruit on our life with the gospel. So I was thinking about Isaiah chapter 61. And I was thinking about just the present now moment of that word, that, that this, the proclamation that, that this is the year of the favor of the Lord, that now is the time, now is the time for those to be set free. And I was thinking of this statement that, you know what, how, if, if, if this stuff isn't sure, if we're not certain here, then we're not going to be certain out there. If we're shaky here in our faith and what God can really do, doesn't it make sense that it's going to be translated as shaky as to what can the gospel really accomplish? And so I just felt like very simply to add to those four things that I said, just to say this morning, brothers and sisters, let's remember that this has external implications and that when God wants to establish us in this moment where things are just seemingly kind of wacky, and out of control to remember, A, God is sovereign, but B, that God is certain. And that we hold on to this certainty. And that certainty that we hold on to bears fruit that's visible for people to see. And they go, man, like, why are you not freaking out right now about, you know, whoever, Trump getting in office or Biden getting in office? You know, why are you not freaking out right now about X, Y, or Z? There's visible fruit to this certainty in our life. And let's not forget that because the integrity of the gospel in a sense, it, it relies upon how certain these things are. Does that make sense? I didn't say that very well. That's good enough. I, wanna, I have a couple more things I want to say before time runs out this morning. I want to say this too. Let's remember, and this is a difficult part of this that I didn't dig into. Let's remember that, that, that Abraham died in faith looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham didn't experience the fullness of the promise that God gave him in that covenant, right? Abraham, he, he didn't own a parcel of land beyond that which he had bought for Sarah in Canaan. So here's this land that God promised to him, and that covenant seemingly didn't come to fruition in Abraham's lifetime. But did it make the promise any less certain? No, because it was Abraham's offspring who were recipients of that part of the covenant. There's things in this promise for us today that we might not, well, guaranteed, we're not gonna see fully in this lifetime. But yet we live in faith and we die in faith. And God's promises still remain true regardless of how we experience them and what we believe they're going to look like in this life. We have to remember that. We have to hold fast, brothers and sisters, and press on to the end by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to finish here in, in a moment of worship. And so I'm going to ask that you stand with me. And it's not worship in song, it's worship in meditation of truth, okay? Okay. And I want you to respond here, just in your own hearts as I read this, and I'm hoping that this translates well as I read it. As most of you know, we've been studying through a book called None Greater on the, on the attributes of who God is. And I was just blown away this last, last week's discussion by something that was read. And I want to read it for you here this morning. And this, again, is this 
truth of elevating our understanding of who God is, making sure that we keep God rightly where only God exists, which is above all, outside of this finite reality that is our perspective. And so I just want to give you here a moment to reflect upon this. The author is Matthew Barrett, and what I'm going to read is both Matthew Barrett's words, but also him quoting an old church father named Anselm. He says this, Is it any surprise that Christians down through the centuries have used the word supreme in referring to God? Supremacy captures the perfection of God's infinite nature. Clearly any good thing that the supreme nature is, it is that thing supremely. Wrestle with that for a moment. Clearly any good thing that the supreme nature is, is that thing supremely. His nature is therefore supreme essence, supreme life, supreme reason, supreme health, supreme justice, supreme wisdom, supreme truth, supreme goodness, supreme greatness, supreme beauty, supreme immortality, supreme incorruptibility, supreme immutability, Supreme happiness, supreme eternity, supreme power, supreme unity. Each and every attribute deserves to be called supreme. For that reason alone, our God, who is one, deserves our worship, brothers and sisters. Our finitude constantly reminds us that we owe our lives to the one who is infinite, who has no limitations. He is his attributes in infinite measure. Therefore, he is the most perfect being, something than which nothing greater can be thought. He is without qualification, without reservation, the supreme being, the fullness of being itself. And here is my prayer. May we not imagine God in our own image but bow to the ground like Moses before the burning bush as finite creatures before the supremacy of the perfectly infinite God. Oh God, how much greater you are and therefore how much more certain are your words and promises than any man's that ever was. Lord, would you expand our understanding to see that all of your words not only are true, but will certainly come to pass, and therefore, Lord, that we would apprehend that somehow to take fruit in our life, Lord, to bear good fruit in glory of your name. You are supreme, Lord. 
supreme being, perfect in every way, and therefore everything that you do, Lord, is supreme to its utmost. It is greater than to its utmost. And so today, Father, as we come, we come in reverence and in awe, but yet also confidence and thankfulness of heart that this supreme God has ushered us into his presence today, has ushered us into a place of blessing and hides us and places us beneath his wing and inside the crevice that is Jesus Christ. Lord, this just profundity of truth that you are both otherly transcendent and yet simultaneously near to your people. We thank you, Father. We ask today by your spirit that you would solidify us in our lack of faith. Lord, where there is unbelief, would you exchange it for certainty, God? Would you help us, Lord, to exercise our faith muscles, to build up strength and dexterity in our faith, Lord God, that we would be able to react quickly, to default rightly, Lord God, and to live and exercise faith with longevity and strength. Lord, to the glory of your name, to Christ alone we give glory today, and we commend ourselves and this church unto the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, we agree. Amen. May God's grace so go with you this week, and I hope that you find yourselves just anchored in him in a greater way. May God be glorified through this church. Amen? Amen. Have a wonderful week. Bless you all. We'll see you again here. Hebrews chapter 7, Melchizedek, he returns.